0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutionary Collective, Comrades, Critics, and Dynamics in the Struggle for Socialism by Paul LeBlanc. This book offers an indispensable assessment of the place of revolutionary collectives in the revolutionary socialist tradition. Beginning with a broad and informative survey of scholarship on Lenin and Leninism, as well as the multifaceted collective qualities of the Russian Bolshevik Revolution, scholar Paul LeBlanc then turns his attention to several of its central figures, as well as a rich variety of left-wing intellectuals who in one way or another continued to engage with Lenin's perspective after his death. As John Riddell puts it, Paul LeBlanc provides us with a sparkling array of revolutionary portraits, illuminating the interplay of socialist movements with individual liberatory initiative. Revolutionary Collective by Paul LeBlanc, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is the first of a two-part interview with Michael Denning on the Italian communist leader and theorist Antonio Gramsci. It's something like a two-course meal. This week, a shorter appetizer—shorter in in dig terms, at least—followed next week by a lengthier entree. Gramsci speaks to me not just intellectually, which he definitely does, but more than perhaps any other Marxist theorist, as an organizer. Gramsci developed Marxism, or the theory of praxis, into a method for doing politics, first as a socialist and then communist militant leader and intellectual, and then, ultimately, as a prisoner under Mussolini, where he wrote what became his famous prison notebooks over the last decade of his life. Gramsci provides us not with historically determinist iron laws of capitalist life and development, but rather with tools to analyze the moment, the conjuncture, in the longer context of history, and to think through what sort of politics, ideology, and organization might be required for the working class to overcome it and rule. It's the making of what Stuart Hall later called a Marxism without guarantees. Indeed, In a couple months or so, I will be interviewing Michael Denning once again on Stuart Hall, who was greatly influenced by Gramsci. There's so much more I could say by way of introduction, but I will save it for the interview. You don't need to read Gramsci to listen to these interviews, but if you do want to read alongside us, I'm posting in the show notes a link to a list of the portions of the prison notebooks that I read to prepare for this interview, passages suggested to me by Denning from the classic international publisher's edition selections from the prison notebooks. Anyways, The Dig, as you likely know, is by and large a listener-supported podcast. What's incredible is that we make that happen without paywalling any episodes because we want every episode free and available to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. That's only possible because listeners, listeners just like you, support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig simply because you respond to requests like these that I'm making right now, and that is remarkable. We also, though, do have goodies to send you as thank you gifts, a contribution of $10 or more a month, and we'll send you a book or books in the mail, a dig mug, or a dig tote bag. Please contribute now if you haven't yet but can afford to do so. It really means a lot to me, and it's what makes this podcast possible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And one other thing, a contribution of any amount at all, and you will get The Dig's weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. You can also find our wonderful newsletters posted free at thedigradio.com alongside our vast archives. But trust me, you want to get it by email. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thedig. Okay. Here's Michael Denning, a professor in the American Studies Program and the Program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University, who coordinates the Yale Working Group on Globalization and Culture. His books include Noise Uprising, The Audio Politics of a World Musical Revolution, Culture in the Age of Three Worlds, and The Cultural Front, The Laboring of American Culture in the 20th Century. Michael Denning, welcome to The Dig.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Who was Antonio Gramsci and how did he, imprisoned for 11 years under Italy's fascist government, end up filling 3,000 notebook pages with such remarkable analysis and theorization around the sorts of politics that communism required in the 20th century? I I know this is an impossibly big first question, but... We've got to start somewhere.
1: <laughs> it's an, There's an, a bunch of different ways to think about that. One could actually start by just saying, I think the way most academics would, that Gramsci is one of the major political thinkers of the 20th century. Gramsci would think that's an unreasonable and inaccurate reason to look at him. That's not really the interesting way. And in fact, the way of thinking about intellectual history as a series of great thinkers is one of the the points that Gramsci wants to challenge throughout all of this. One of the most intriguing moments in the prison notebooks is when he writes a whole set of notes on how one might think about Marx. Both very detailed things in saying, yes, we should pay very close attention to the biography. We should figure out which things he was writing that were meant for a public audience and which were correspondence, because one might say things in correspondence that one wouldn't say in a public audience. What are the things that are then put together by the inheritors later who edit it? And on the other hand, wanting to say, what's the relation between Marx and those that are his inheritors of Gramsci's own generation? like Lenin. So the question of sort of how one thinks about such a figure is one of the key questions for Gramsci. But it's actually not the first question. (laughs) And actually begins to say that the first question to be asked is, where do our conceptions of the world and where do our norms of conduct come from and how do they change? And one of his powerful arguments, this will come around to who he is, is to say the philosophy of praxis, Marxism, is a kind of historic change in our conception of the world, not unlike the Renaissance or the Protestant Reformation. And in that sense, for him, Marx is not unlike Martin Luther, a kind of figure who is not just a great thinker, but is an emblem of a major transition in intellectual, philosophical, and political action. And that's the way that Gramsci reads Marx and wants to understand how the philosophy of praxis at one point, he says, is the Renaissance and the Reformation combined for the modern world, and why he will return to one of those Renaissance thinkers, Machiavelli's The Prince, in trying to write what he calls for his own book, Never Finished, The Modern Prince. So if one puts it in that kind of sense, one can see where Gramsci himself fits then In that modern reformation that he says will probably take centuries, as indeed the Renaissance and the Reformation did. And so we only a century after Gramsci are part of that same time world. He is really of that remarkable generation of artists, intellectuals, writers, thinkers that we refer to as modernists. Most of them come of age in the late 19-teens, at the time of World War I and the Russian Revolution of 1917. And that's the moment when Gramsci comes of age from 1914 to 1945, World War I and World War II, depression in between it. That is very The moment of Gramsci's life. And weirdly, so he's born in 1891 in Sardinia, a Mediterranean island off the Italian coast, part of that new, newly united Italy, which is a new nation only since the 1860s, only 30 years before his birth. He's the child of a petty bureaucrat. In fact, the family's fortunes go downhill when his father is imprisoned either rightly or wrongly for embezzlement. It may have just been his political enemies that went after him. He's not a peasant as he grows up, but he's living in an overwhelmingly peasant society. And so that really marks his first 20 years are growing up in Sardinia. He's speaking a dialect across Italy. Many people speak many different versions of Italian. There is no national language. And many of his comments about dialect and national language are actually uh, accounts of his own experience. And when he goes to northern Italy to Turin in 1911, it's perhaps worth thinking that Turin is kind of the Detroit. Of Italy. It is the center of the new auto industry. Fiat is based there in Turin. And so he moves from a very rural, very agricultural island on the periphery of Italy to the most modern, the most Fordist part of the Italian peninsula to study at university there. It's an industrial metalworking center of really the new technologies of the day, which are sort of fashioned around the automobile, but are steel and oil and rubber and the assembly line that are all being brought together. And so that's the world he comes into. He's studying language and philology. And indeed, one of his linguistics professors is always asking him to say, how do they say these things in Sardinia? He's kind of the native informant from the provinces who comes to Turin and very strongly feels his outsiderness as a kind of southerner, as a Sardinian in northern Italy. And the young Gramsci, though this will not be there in the later Gramsci, even has a his first political things as a kind of Sardinian nationalist, kind of interested in autonomy and the independence of Sardinia. He becomes, however, in Turin, an activist in the Socialist Party. He's a young, in his twenties, a Socialist Party activist and theater critic. And he never gets his doctoral degree or anything. But he's sort of mixing a kind of precarious life. The letters home are always send more money, which they don't have very much of, to support him as a student, while at the same time involved in organizing, going to theater, writing reviews, and. In the newspapers, editing little newspapers of his own with his friends, then the war is a tremendous impact. Many of the military metaphors you find in Gramsci's notebooks come out of living through battling over the First World War and Italy's involvement in that. But really the events that most structure Gramsci's life will be after the war when Italian workers occupy the factories. Gramsci is involved in it. He's visiting those factories. He's organizing in them. He's editing a journal called The New Order. And then they're also receiving at this point news of the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviets or councils from Russia in 1917. And throughout, there's a number of post-war in 1919 attempts to create councils, to create factory occupations, general strikes. There's one in Seattle. That moment right after the war is a remarkable moment of political and social and labor absurgency. And Gramsci is a key part of that. That really shapes him. That is the great moment indeed, great tragic moment in some sense, of the split in the socialist movement between what will stay as the main socialist parties in most places and the emergence of new communist parties allied in one way or another with the hopes of the new Bolshevik revolution. And Gramsci is part of that split in the Italian party and becomes one of the founders of Italy's communist party and is indeed elected to parliament in the early 1920s. He also goes to Moscow and is for a number of years the Italian representative of the Italian party to the Communist International in those early years of debate and controversy before Lenin's death in 1923, before Stalin's takeover of the party apparatus and the purging, isolation, and eventual killing of figures like Bukharin and Trotsky. The Italian trajectory goes slightly differently because it is in that moment is the explosion of new labor movements, new socialist movements, new syndicalist movements, new communist movements on the left. It is also the seedbed of a new fascism, Uh, and one sees that in the early fascist organizations of, of Hitler in Germany, but in this case, Mussolini's march on Rome and coming to power. And so early on, Gramsci becomes one of the key figures in the opposition to fascism. And indeed, in 1926, he's now only 35 years old. Remember, he is arrested. And at his trial, a prosecutor says we must prevent this brain from functioning for 20 years because he had become such an important leader of the Italian left at that point. And so from 1926 to 1937, those 11 years, he spends in prison. At the very end, he ends up in prison hospitals, is released in some kind of way. But by then, his health has deteriorated so much that he dies in 1937. But it's about 10 years when most of the notebooks are written. It's a long, hard process. We actually, the physical notebooks were protected and saved from destruction by the fascists by World War II and were then published after the Second World War. Uh, I think the most interesting thing to finish on this is that whereas Gramsci's writings before 1925 All those writings in the decade when he was a young activist are quite interesting, but are really interesting mainly to scholars and historians of that particular period because they were always written for the moment. They are newspaper articles about this particular issue, this particular strike, this particular debate in the parliament or whatever. One of the things that happens when he gets into prison And after a year or more of actually fighting first to have paper and pen to be able to write, and then later to actually have some books, to have newspapers, that's a long battle. He decides, and he writes this in a letter at one point, that he wants to write for eternity. He could no longer be engaged in day to day politics. And all of a sudden, his writing changes. He's actually asking questions why did things go wrong? Why did the occupations not win out? Why did those organizations not take root? Why did fascism win? What were the roots of Mussolini's popularity? How do we understand this? How do we see this in the roots of the contemporary politics in the long history of Italy and Italian politics? How do we understand how we get our conceptions of the world, how we get our norms of conduct, and how do those change? And as a result, the notebooks that he writes in literally in those black school notebooks that school children had, the 33 of them end up being the thousands of pages later published edited, and understood. And in some sense, they are were written for us, for posterity, in the way that the journalistic articles of 1917 or 1922 were not. And as a result, they continue, I think, to fascinate. They go back to first questions. They're interesting often more for the questions that they ask than for the answers that they provide.
0: One contextual question on the form of the prison notebooks before we dive into their content. How did the conditions of prison writing make for a very particular style, rife with euphemism and code words, at times somewhat enigmatic?
1: Well, yes. So everything is written with the prison censor in mind in some kind of way. So that leads to a long debate in Gramscian interpretation. And I'll give you two sides of it and another way to think about it. One is that we should uh, read all of the things as just code words, that he couldn't say Marxism, so he says the philosophy of praxis. So if you see philosophy of praxis, translate it back into code. And there are some of these which are pretty clear. When he doesn't really say Lenin too often, but if he says Illich, you can pretty much translate that back to Lenin. On the other hand, it's also arguable that he is trying to invent and so that actually the philosophy of praxis has a whole set of meanings and connotations for Gramsci that go beyond what would be done by just reducing it to Marxism. So there's always a kind of double sense of whether one is reading a new concept as a disguise for an older concept. Or a stretch, a way to think through past some of it. And he's so scathing about. The dogmas of his own side, of his own party, and so one can see these as new concepts and ideas. The early 80s uh, on television they weren't allowed to swear and so there were characters who invented these extraordinary kind of fake swears, fake curse words that actually were in their own ways uh, a richer and more imaginative vocabulary than if they had actually used the ones that were banned on television. And there's a certain way where one might think about Brahmshi with that. Since he couldn't say the standard curse words, he had to invent new curse words, which actually some of them are just codes, but others are really new and imaginative ways of understanding new metaphors for what we thought we already knew.
0: The concept we should probably begin with is hegemony, which for Gramsci described the totality of forms of coercion and consent that a ruling group uses to govern a society. What, what does Gramsci mean by hegemony and what's important about his insight that hegemony is secured and maintained through this combination of consent and coercion?
1: Let me challenge that slightly. Please. So I, I, I take what I like to think of as the, uh, the Jeopardy approach to social theory, which is to say, uh, rather than trying to define a term, give a term, and what is the question to which that term is the answer? And I think in many ways, one of the difficulties in the U.S., uh, appropriation of Gramsci has often been to try to figure out a half a dozen concepts which are kind of the keywords of concept hegemony, subaltern, organic intellectual or whatever, get definitions of them which are more or less accurate and then use them in other kinds of places. Uh, yet it seems to me that one of the more interesting ways to go at this would be to ask the question: what is the question? Gramsci's asking to which hegemony is some kind of an answer. Because one of Gramsci's fundamental arguments is that new words don't change things. And so that hegemony itself can't be an answer. An answer to a particular situation is a new situation, is a new politics. So the question really becomes what are the sources of a new? Collective will. Where does a new political formation, we might call it if we translate it into American, where does a new social movement come from? And what you'll end up arguing is that in some cases, a social group that emerges to take leadership in a society has not only to have economic and political power, otherwise they couldn't have that leadership, but that's fundamental. They actually have to begin to conform, his word there, the society to their ideas to win consent in that sense. If you're building a party, a popular party of working people, working people, and remember at this point, this is before there is high school education for working people, where working people may have only the rudiments of literacy and numeracy, the party has to be an educational institution. And so there were party schools. He's very interested in what the curriculum of those party schools would be. He says you begin with the common sense of ordinary people, the spontaneous philosophy that people have gotten from their, their schools, to be sure, but also from their work, from, from their churches, and how does that put together into a conception of the world? And so, that in fact, a philosophical education is an education that is a critique of that common sense. That common sense is also, he says, embedded in the people's language that the words we speak carry with it a whole set of concepts that we don't know. And so one of his intriguing things will be to try to say, let's take the words that we use, the language that we use to shape that common sense.
0: And, and this argument, as you suggested earlier, has has implications for what has often been called false consciousness. The question of what to make of people holding beliefs that are contrary to, I guess, either their interests or even more so their lived reality. Gramsci writes, quote, The contrast between thought and action, i.e. the coexistence of two conceptions of the world, one affirmed in words and the other displayed in effective action, is not simply a product of self-deception. It is, rather, expression of profounder contrasts of a social order. What's this distinction drawn between holding that people are simply being duped versus Gramsci's notion that there are contradictions at play that are much deeper Expressing themselves on the level of what Gramsci calls common sense.
1: So let's see the question of where we get our conceptions of the world from and how they change. Because uh, he's actually quite skeptical of the sense that one could rationally persuade people to another position because the facts are on your side. For the ordinary person, you can make a good argument to them, and they will say, oh, yeah, I remember someone else who made the opposite argument, and I, could, I couldn't answer it right now, but it was convincing to me at that point, and so I'll remain on that side. That our common sense is built in part out of our faith in the other people in our social group who we have heard put it better than we did at various points. And indeed, those figures can actually be, as he said from the parish priest, he's usually his religious examples are Catholic ones working in Catholic Italy, to other business people on the Chamber of Commerce or that kind of thing, or a certain politician or whatever. And that common sense is a kind of mix of both. He says at one point, Stone Age traces these kind of old folk beliefs and proverbs to, on the other hand, knowing the most up-to-date science. And so common sense is this weird Combination of that. And that the figures who help us shape our conception of the world are, in the largest sense of the world, intellectuals. They are the organizers of ideas in a society. For him, school teachers, local school teachers and local priests are organic intellectuals of daily life, very fundamental ones in passing on certain folklore, certain knowledges. One should also say the division that he maintains between common sense and good sense. And common sense is basically that set of beliefs that you sort of have that you think is what you believe and are what your opinions are. And good sense are the practices and knowledges that you have out of the work that you do. As far as I can tell, my colleagues as professors When they talk about politics, they have the same common sense as anybody else around. Some of them have a little bit better than the others, but it's the same mix of received ideas that one gets out of the newspapers and all the other media or whatever. But if you ask them, oh, how do you put together a syllabus? How do you teach this class? They have a remarkable good sense that comes out of years of teaching students. I had a cousin once who was a great conspiracy theorist about all kinds of weird kinds of stuff. And lots of people in the family wouldn't even talk to him because they would, he would go on to his conspiracy stuff. But he was a farmer, a dairy farmer. If you got talking to him about dairy farming, he was a fountain of good sense. He knew stuff about dairy farming. And that's a really fundamental divide in Gramsci because that goes back and forth. Part of Gramsci's faith in ordinary people, is that we are not simply prisoners of our common sense. That actually all of us have the good sense that comes out of the labor and the elaboration of that labor. Elaboration is one of his favorite words, the sort of working through of the ideas, which is a labor of ideas. He wants to recognize and break down the division between mental and manual labor. So he basically says there is no manual labor that doesn't have a mental aspect. There is no mental labor that doesn't have a manual aspect. He talks about the physical toll that it takes to learn how to sit and read for eight hours a day, how to take notes physically, and that there are ways in which the actual manual side of the conditions of prison made him extraordinarily aware of how difficult even reading and thinking and writing are as physical exhausting activities in prison. He is very dedicated to the study of classical languages, particularly Latin, in the sense that this is a kind of mental exercise that is necessary to develop the mind. His educational philosophy often seems very conservative in our terms because he has this sense of the kind of necessity for a kind of forming activity of the body and mind.
0: Gramsci writes that a successful ideological movement can only come about, quote, when in the process of elaborating a form of thought superior to common sense and coherent on a scientific plane, it never forgets to remain in contact with the simple and indeed finds in this contact the source of the problems it sets out to study and resolve. He continues, quote, it must be a criticism of common sense basing itself initially, however, on common sense. What is Gramsci arguing here about About rooting ideologies, not just rooting ideologies, but rooting the elaboration, the practical elaboration of ideologies that aspire to hegemony, rooting them in people's everyday lives, and, and as you were just discussing, rooting them in the good sense that people have because of their practical activity in the world, and also, I think, even maybe... Seeding the growth of these insurgent ideologies amid the imminent contradictions of reigning ideologies.
1: Yeah, the example that he sees as doing this most powerfully is the Catholic Church, and indeed the Jesuits will be his example. Catholicism is for him a very powerful conception of the world, which he says always maintained a connection between the intellectuals, the theologians, and the simple in this version, the ordinary people. That you could never let the theologians get too far from the parish priests. (laughs) And that actually one had to have a conception of the world that could be translated back and forth between the top and the bottom. And so for him, the challenge for the philosophy of praxis for Marxism, for his communist party, is to create a conception of the world, which is accessible both to the young militants, still barely literate, barely numerate, who are coming in because of the oppression of their daily life and daily work, but also the intellectuals who are contesting and battling. And throughout the prison notebooks, he's got this double sense. We have two tasks popular education, and the combating of dominant ideologists at the highest level. And it's very hard to pull those two together. And I think that it's arguable whether or not anyone has actually pulled that out in the socialist tradition. You can see moments, but that's really the the hope that he's trying to do. Can one see the other side doing it? One could argue that if neoliberalism has become hegemonic over the last 40 years. It is by the moving of notions of capital, of human capital, of entrepreneurship, of risk, of all of the kind of image of the market into the rest of our world.
0: More than many of his contemporaries, I think Gramsci seems attentive to the the, the complex ...diverse composition of the non-ruling classes. It's not just the capitalists and the proletariat. Beyond that Manichean divide, he seems to identify a more complex idea of social organization and therefore of how strategic politics might relate to that reality. He writes, quote, "...although every party is the expression of a social group and one social group only..." Nevertheless, in certain given conditions, certain parties represent a single social group precisely insofar as they exercise a balancing and arbitrating function between the interests of their group and those of other groups, and succeed in securing the development of the group which they represent with the consent and assistance of the allied groups, if not out and out, with that of the groups which are definitely hostile. What is Gramsci drawing out here about? the inevitably coalitional nature of politics and what role then does the political party play in that
1: one of the real battles throughout is who leads the labor movement who leads the opposition is it led by trade unions or by political parties at that time at the turn of the century One tradition has basically said, let's stay out of politics to the point of even abstention not even getting involved in electoral campaigns, abstaining from campaigns. Remember, there is no universal suffrage at this point. Politics looks like a battle of different elites. You're not going to win. The parliament is often what Gramsci says, a talking shop where people take positions, but nothing actually happens, not unlike the present House of Representatives or something like that. And so that actually workplace struggles are at the focused. On the other side are those who say, hold on a second, no, it should be the party that rules. This is in particularly the more democratic, the more parliamentary system. We should be electing mayors. We have elected mayors in Bridgeport, in Milwaukee, in other cities around the country. We should be running candidates for presidents. Those two, it's not that they're necessarily opposed, but that's kind of what Gramsci is worrying. On the first side is what he will call economism, as does Lenin, which is those people on the side of the unions, whether trade or industrial, who basically say it's all the economy, whereas the other version, a kind of politicism, the term he will probably more often use, a kind of parliamentarism. Both of those were in crisis under fascism. The factory occupations did not lead to the overthrow of that society, and the Socialist Party itself splintered. So in some sense, Gramsci's rethinking is, how do we rethink this relation between the economic and the political, between the kind of imagining that everything is economic interests or imagine that everything is political coalitions. And I think he wants to avoid either one of those. How does one build a kind of vision of a national popular, of a people that is actually beyond economic
0: interests? Hi, this is Olufemi o and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at Patreon.com. The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by tons of amazing publications and publishers who put out work that Dig listeners want to read. You've heard advertisements from Verso, Haymarket, Jacobin, Phenomenal World, Polity, University of California Press, N Plus One, and more. If you're a publisher who wants to advertise on The Dig, episodes that reach roughly 50,000 Dig listeners, email digradiopod at gmail.com. If you are an author who wants to see your book advertised here, ask your publisher to get in touch. We could make a lot more money, a lot more, advertising mattresses and web hosting services, but we charge lower rates because we want listeners to hear about stuff that's relevant to them and to our podcast. That's why it's basically books and magazines. Our listeners are smart, left-wing, and they buy and read magazines and books. Contact us now to advertise. That's digradiopod at gmail.com. Why, more generally speaking, is economism such a tempting perversion of Marxism, both then vis-a-vis his contemporaries and also, I would argue, throughout all of history through the present? And what is it about Gramsci's insight into the relationship between structures and superstructures that undermines this sort of economistic vision.
1: So uh, one way he'll say is that it is a kind of wisdom that comes cheap, that if basically one says, oh, well, this war is about oil. Well, yes, it is about oil in one sense or another, but does that really give you any new knowledge that actually allows you to organize, to change people's minds or whatever? That reduction doesn't really gain any new knowledge. He will then say is, hold on a second, though, people are not crazy to believe this. And so we have to understand why people do believe this. He's not anti-economist in that sense. There are other traditions in Marxism that basically says we know that those kinds of things are wrong or whatever. Gramsci never says that.
0: Yeah, he says, quote, when you don't have the initiative in the struggle and the struggle itself becomes eventually to be identified with a series of defeats, mechanical determinism becomes a tremendous force of moral resistance, of cohesion and of patient and obstinate perseverance.
1: Exactly, which is to say, when you're losing, and he says this, (laughs) when a social movement is weak, when a social movement is losing, it is often drawn to more deterministic, more mechanical versions, that famous title of Castro's speech, history will absolve me, or history is on our side, that sense that somehow in the long run, even though it looks really bad right now, and he uses again examples uh, from the history of religion, is basically those Calvinists. He says who were who most believed in predestination, the kind of mechanical determinism of that Christian era, were the ones who were the most activist and most voluntarist uh, because they felt like they could go out and act. On the grounds of that. And so he wants to distinguish between what he says is a kind of mechanical determinism of the elite, the resigned elite. Oh, history's just going to follow. It's all war. You'll always have the poor with you. So just setback or whatever with a kind of more determined determinism of those who are losing, who say, even though we're losing today, go out and fight tomorrow because in the long run, we're going to win. On the other hand, he says, that's not enough. You can't leave people at that position of pure faith, that indeed a party that actually wants to turn people into self-determining, self-ruling rulers of their own society has to actually do a criticism of that common sense, raise people in it, raise oneself out of that reified common sense, those Stone Age traces, and re-understand, understand in the good sense out of one's experience of work, out of one's experience of politics, out of one's experience of one's own household life and neighborhood life. And so that's, I think, that crucial part.
0: One upshot of economism, Gramsci argues, is, is that it can reduce politics to, quote, a moralistic accusation of duplicity and bad faith, or, in the case of the movement's followers, of naivete and stupidity. But what's the relationship Gramsci is drawing between economism and and a moralistic account of politics. And what then is the danger of a moralistic account of politics? Because it's something that I continue to see all around me constantly today.
1: (laughs) And it's hard not to uh, fall into either economism or a moralistic version of it. So, you know, one place to see it is in his analysis of the Boulanger movement in 1880s, 1890s France, who was a kind of right-wing populist political thinker. His thinking about the Boulanger movement is a disguised way of his thinking about Mussolini, and it becomes a disguised way of us thinking about Trump. Basically, how does one understand a social movement of the right? The boulanger type, that weird with a certain militarism, a certain populism, a certain nationalism. He says straightforwardly, there are very powerful capitalist forces who are backing this guy. And you could go and find who are the people behind that. And he's thinking just as you could find the dark money behind Mussolini and just as in, say, Jane Meyer's great work, you can see the dark money, the Koch brothers and all that kind of stuff behind that movement. And Gramsci never thinks that that is not important work to be done. But he says that's not sufficient to understand why that movement actually begins to take power. And the second half, which is to say, oh, well, all these people are duped. If they only knew it was Koch brother money behind them, they wouldn't do this, is equally wrong. He both tries to understand the left from the point of view of the right and the right from the point of view of the left, which is to say, look at this social movement as if one was looking at our own social movement. What are the forms of identity, the forms of appeal that make this powerful? Because then he also is sort of saying to his own generation of communists, not only should we look at Mussolini's followers For why they are fascists and what their actual beliefs are and in both its contradictions and consistencies. But then when we imagine building our own movement, we should actually be thinking in that same kind of expanded hegemonic way of thinking rather than thinking in the strict economic way, which is, well, you know, it's kind of, the the Soros answer to the Koch brothers. If we had our own left wing money, then we could do the same things that they do. If the money is all that it is, then it would be just about finding those kinds of resources. It's not as quite as simple as what I just laid out, because in his political theory, he also does say, and this is a really important thing to underline, that A movement that is based on people who have to work for a living every day can't use the same strategies as a movement that has its own professional militias, its own professional politicians, its own money. And so there are moments when he actually wants to parallel movements to the left and movements to the right in understanding how they are reshaping conceptions of the world, how they are reshaping norms of conduct. On the other hand, he says we can't use the same strategies and tactics because we actually have a very different population that we are trying to mobilize.
0: There, there's again a certain acceptance of the inevitability and everyday practicality of, in this case, a moralistic account of the world, but also a recognition of its of its dangers. And today, I really think we see moralism operating across the entire spectrum. We have certain moralistic forms of popular anti elitism that became Trumpism when hijacked by reactionary currents that that, that blame a, a small cabal for capitalism's depredations. And you see, as, as I think you suggested, among liberals, uh, efforts to portray Trumpism as a simple story of rubes getting getting swindled by a snake oil salesman and getting puppeteered by by the Koch brothers, conveniently redirecting any sort of explanation for Trumpism from, let's say, the entire history of the mainstream political economic order that they're deeply complicit in. And then again, on the left. We see, I think, a very powerful movement among rank and file Bernie diehards, especially those not connected to to socialist organization, in this period of of desperation and defeat, turning to extremely moralistic accounts of the Democratic Party establishment.
1: But I guess the thing is, how does one square Gramsci's resistance? To a moralistic politics in the sense of a moralistic rhetoric and his quite passionate, positive sense that what a new politics requires is a moral reformation. (laughs) (laughs) But Gramsci again and again goes back and says, you can't understand this in an abstract or mechanical way. You cannot reduce this to a set of sociological rules and laws that even if they're Marxist sociological rules and laws, you can't turn it into a kind of Newtonian world where there are classes and class fractions that move around like the planets in kind of mathematical orbits. That in fact, you have to sit down and one whole section and the densest section for Americans of the prison notebooks are notes on Italian history, which are his attempt to figure out in this way, what were the attempts? to kind of create an Italian national people, an Italian national culture? Why did they succeed? Why did they not succeed? Why are the paradoxes? And so the question that raises to me is, I think we have still yet to see a notes on American history that would be that way. Is there actually a real history of Uh, The Democratic Party that tells us how the party of slaveholders from Jefferson and Jackson becomes the party of Roosevelt, let alone the party of Biden. Those kinds of reversals, what they mean, their relation both to the fundamental economic forces, after all, the slave plantation economy is a fundamental economic force, the rise of the railroads of the great corporations in the late 19th century, right up until the rise of the the Apples and the Microsofts and the platform industries of our own day. You couldn't tell it without that. But what is the relation between the platform industries and Biden or McCarthy? Those are the kinds of questions that that Gramsci again and again in this book has to say, you got to ask that question.
0: Gramsci does argue that economism was behind, quote, all forms of electoral abstentionism. Yes. Which was related to more generally a, quote, rigid aversion on principle to what are termed compromises. He continues, quote, For the conception upon which the aversion is based can only be the iron conviction that there exist certain objective laws of historical development, similar in kind of natural laws, together with a belief in a predetermined teleology like that of a religion. Since favorable conditions are inevitably going to appear, and since these, in a rather mysterious way, will bring about palingenetic events, it is evident that any deliberate initiative tending to predispose and plan these conditions is not only useless, but even harmful. And so Gramsci criticizes the idea of explicitly disavowing electoral politics, like not participating, but even also effectively disavowing electoral politics by using them exclusively for the purposes of propaganda. And like you said, I think importantly, we can't look to Gramsci for a set of ironclad rules. What what sort of questions then does his method insist that we ask when we think about questions like reform and compromise.
1: One of the hardest things to understand about Gramsci is what's the relation between the state and civil society? And what makes up the state? Is the state the legislature? Is it the executive branch? Is it Biden or whatever? Is it the Pentagon and the military? How many school boards are there and school systems in the United States? Those are all state apparatuses in a certain kind of way. The state employees, you know, one of the biggest unions in the country is that of state, county, municipal employees. And so all the different levels of what the state are, you know, where we even think of as electoral politics I think, is up for grabs in that kind of way. In Gramsci's time, there were many fewer state employees, and most of them were on the far right and were often, because they were military employees or state bureaucrats, were often associated with forms of fascism. We're now in a situation where a large part of the working population are working for the state in various forms, are public employees. And one of those... The major divides in the labor movement are between public employees and private employees, the different kinds of union access they have, the different kinds of access people have, to pensions, the struggles that have taken place as actually being one part of the working population against another part of the working population. Those private employees who don't have union rights, who do not have guaranteed pensions, feeling like they are being cheated, having to pay taxes for that. All of those kinds of issues which are fundamental to the class politics of the present U.S. And even among the state public employees where Just in terms of numbers, I think public employee unions still remain relatively liberal. On the other hand, you have prison guards, police officers who have a very different kind of politics, let alone a whole set of private employees that appear to be private employees, but are working for defense contractors of one sort or another, and so are actually working for kind of outsourced from the state. Uh, I remember from the early days of the anti-war movement, is not paying your taxes. Was that a form of left resistance to a military state? Or was that a kind of anarchist indulgence to not actually pay your taxes to a welfare state? The line between the welfare and warfare state is a tricky one in thinking those through.
0: I would say that that today may be the most fundamentally unhelpful Manichaean divide on the left often pits so-called electoralism against so-called mutual aid. And then we see similar divides between people who say only mass organization or only electoral and legislative struggle. And I'll put my cards on the table that I feel like reading Gramsci makes me feel confident that the answer has to be that we do all of the above, but that only a close study of the present moment can tell us what sort of combination of efforts would be most Strategic, and that none is inherently the most valuable or strategic front.
1: I think that Gramsci does lead one to not think that one position is guaranteed to be the central position. People should fight in struggles where they feel they can be most effective and most powerful and where their own talents are. As opposed to a certain tradition, and I remember it from my own youth, of people of my generation thinking, oh, they would go off into the factory in order to organize factory workers, even though they had never worked in a factory day in their life. For some of them, that was a crazy decision. Others actually ended up becoming factory workers, finding a life doing that were part of a kind of new labor movement. So it wasn't like that was a right or a wrong, but I do think that- And are
0: still labor leaders today. And
1: still labor leaders today. And so it does seem to me that we could all have on the left a more of a a kind of compassion for each other following one's own gifts and abilities in that kind of way, rather than uh, guilting people into doing things that they don't necessarily have gifts for. The other hand, I think it is always worth, even when one feels like Gramsci is, particularly when one feels like Gramsci is endorsing or helping support one's own position, is to remember that his own positions came out of, and he would say this, particular historical moments, his own resistance To economism and to syndicalism and to that electoral abstentionism was partly because he had been so deeply involved in the factory occupation movement and was then worried about why it had failed. And so his perhaps bending of the stick to the party was in part feeling like, well, maybe we didn't put enough attention on the party. We didn't attend to things outside the workshop. And he says, most of the people in Turin didn't work in factories. They were in individual households. They were working on the street. They were informal workers. They were in tiny workshops. We had these huge occupations of the giant factories, but we didn't touch most of those people. And then the second thing he says is, and Most of the people on the Italian peninsula don't live in Turin until we figure out how to reach the people in the South, the people in Sardinia that he had grown up with. We're not going to make any progress. And so there was, I think, always in Gramsci a sense that his own excitement, which he never disowned, of the electricity. Of those moments, which he saw were greater than strikes. After all, he says at one moment, in a strike, all one is asking of people is endurance, loyalty, passivity, stay out, don't work, suffer, go without the salary. The factory occupation, he says, it's like take over, continue producing continue to work, continue to contribute to the society, run it yourself, we don't need the bosses. And he has this great line, he said he couldn't believe how old workers worn down by years of struggle were actually taking a new leadership position. Were involved in factory theatricals, in games after work. And so, so how to do justice to both of those senses. The Gramsci who was at moments of extraordinary political struggle and was electrified by that. And the Gramsci who says, wow, there were a lot of places that weren't Seattle. There were a lot of places that weren't Paris 1968. And those struggles are meant meaningful too. Is I think one of the things that just reading and engaging with Gramsci and with that tradition is so important. Another subaltern intellectual and theorist of the subaltern of his own generation is W.E.B. Du Bois, another figure who you can quote you know, what is Du Bois's position on things? Well, he's he was on the right wing of the Socialist Party during World War I as someone who wanted to support Wilson and go into the war. By the 1950s, he's on the left wing of the Communist Party. You know, Du Bois is constantly thinking through the situation, trying, if there is a notes on American history, it is probably Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. He's the same generation as Gramsci. Like Gramsci goes back to the American Risorgimento. Italy is formed in the wars out of the 1860s, modern Italy. And Gramsci's notes go back to the 1860s and how they get to the 1930s. Just as Du Bois's America is that Lincoln Republic formed out of the crucible of the anti-slavery war in the 1860s going to the 1930s. And so in some sense, it's interesting to think Gramsci not just in the sort of Marxist, European Marxist intellectual, he's there next to the Frankfurt School, Sartre, the other figures of Western Marxism, but to put him against even Du Bois's early notion of the talented 10th is not that far from Gramsci's sense of an organic intellectual. So there are ways one could go back and forth between Du Bois and Gramsci in those ways. That would be what Gramsci would want. Gramsci was never about remembering these as single intellectuals. The philosophy of praxis in its widest sense is a modern renaissance and a modern reformation, which we are either living, depending on how you see it, at the end of that, or still at the beginnings of that.
0: Michael Denning is a professor in the American Study Program and the program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University and coordinates the Yale Working Group on Globalization and Culture. His books include Noise Uprising, The Audio Politics of a World Musical Revolution, Culture in the Age of Three Worlds, and The Cultural Front, The Laboring of American Culture in the 20th Century. I'll also post a link to a New Left Review essay that Denning wrote on Gramsci in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Mark once said after noting that, Upon the different forms of property, upon the social conditions of existence, rises an entire superstructure of distinct and peculiarly formed sentiments, illusions, modes of thought, and views of life. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our brand new, extraordinarily wonderful associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence, Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamoose Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling other people, either on the internet or real life or both, to listen to the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge.